Hello, welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and um, you know, recently we, we've had uh, Herm, Herman Rarebell from the Scorpions uh, on the show, and we've got such a, a great honour to welcome Pete York, formerly of uh, Spencer Davis Group, Harding and York, and, and many, many collaborations and solo materials that he's done today. Just like Herman, Pete is playing at the Drum Legend Show at the Brighton Dome on uh, the 12th of April. Uh, welcome, Pete. Thank you very much, Jason. Yeah, lovely to be here. Lovely to be able to talk to you. No, it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure and privilege. And I've heard uh, from Herman already that in, in that show you'll be playing uh, many of the tracks that you uh, recorded, uh, You know, the, some of the big hits of the Spencer Davis group. Yes. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I enjoy doing them again. I, I would never get bored doing them because, of course, it's also very nice to get the reaction. Mm. And uh, so we do, I do keep on running uh, Give Me Some Love and I'm a Man, you know. Mm. And I do something else from the repertoire of uh, the time that I was with Eddie Hardin. Mm. Uh, we used to have a special arrangement of Lady Madonna Norwegian Wood. So we're gonna, I'm going to play that with my, my keyboard player and uh, a couple of other things. And... Uh, yeah, and then I'm also looking forward, of course, to doing these uh, this drum lineup with uh, Herman and Ginger. Oh yeah, I've heard about that. It sounds brilliant. Yep, yeah, it's going to be great. I, I haven't seen Ginger for uh, really since the since the early days, you know, since the middle '60s. Oh, I haven't seen him. Seen, I haven't seen him or spoken to him. But uh, in those days, I actually I reminded him we met in the dressing room. Uh, with Jack Bruce and Graham Bond and Dick Hextel Smith when he was in the when Ginger was in the Graham yeah. Bond uh, organisation, I think it was called, a long time ago. <laughs> it was, but I'm sure it'll bring back lots of memories. It's great some of the uh, tracks that you mentioned already, and I want to sort of dig in behind many of the tracks that you've you've mentioned today. Yes, please. Yeah, um, and I kind of want to start with um, you know one of the one of the early singles of the Spencer Davis Group, first number one with the band, and, and keep on running and and yeah. I understand that signing with uh, Island Records and working with Chris Blackwell was one of the driving force for for um, getting the song "Keep On Running" and, and ultimately recording your version. Yes, it was uh, because, of course, uh, the song was written by a guy called Jackie Edwards, who was from Jamaica, and uh, so Jackie came in because Chris Blackwell uh, was already doing uh, things, selling records by. A lot of West Indian artists. So it was in those days. It was called ska, blue beat, uh, as well as reggae. You know, it was those kind of things. So Jackie was a very nice guy, and uh, he bought us first of all that song. And when he played it to us, it had this kind of reggae feel because that was natural to him. And so, so we heard it and we liked it very much. And then we gave it that just straight four on the floor feel, as it were. You know, it didn't have that, the lilt of the reggae, um, but we just played it as a straight kind of rock thing. And it was one of the first records which used the wah-wah pedal um, for those chords at the beginning. Not the wah-wah pedal, the... Um, oh, dear, I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, was it Fuzz? Fuzz, uh, fuzz box, yeah. Fuzz box. Uh, so those chords that you hear at the beginning, because we always were told that if you wanted to get a hit, you had to do something very catchy inside of about the first 15, 20 seconds. You know, there had to be something going on which would get the people saying, what's this, you know, and want to hear more of it. And so we came up with this fuzzbox idea. And uh, so you hear these chords, which makes it sound very rough and raunchy. And uh, it was, uh, as you say, it was went to number one, which was great. We were very lucky in that we were on tour with the Rolling Stones just before that. Uh, 
uh, where we were the support act or one of the support acts. We were the act that went on mm. just before the stone. So we were second on the bill in effect. And so we played that keep running every night to this huge number of people. Um, and uh, by the end of the tour, practically, it was number one. Wow. I've heard that uh, Jimmy Cliff was, was in the studio at the time when you were recording uh, Keep On Running. Yes, I think I remember him being there, yeah. Yeah, Jimmy was a pal of ours, and um, there was a few other. There was a guy called Owen Gray, I forget all the names now, of Blackwell's, Blackwell's artists, you know. And, of course, uh, uh, a dear girl who was inadvertently responsible for us coming to the ears of Chris Blackwell was Millie. Uh, you know, my boy Lollipop, because Chris uh-huh. Blackwell was on the road with her mm-hmm. and she was going to be on a pop show at Birmingham Town Hall when we were doing our regular club gig just about 100 yards down the road at the, um, uh, the, uh, the pub that we used to. We had a residency there in Birmingham on Hill Street, I remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Blackwell came down to hear us and immediately he heard that you know, magical voice of Steve's, for one thing. Uh, he thought, you know, I could do something with these guys. And for the next uh, number one hit single with Spencer Davis Group, again, another Jackie Edwards, Somebody Help Me. Yeah, another Jackie, yeah, Somebody Help Me. Yeah, which also, if anybody cares to try it, if you put a reggae rhythm section in behind that, it also still works. <laughs> <laughs> and then came one more, actually, after that, which Jackie wrote called When I Come Home. Oh, yeah. Uh, the same thing with that. So, in other words, those those songs they had a kind of uh, a style to them and that came out of the fact they were written by the same guy and he happened to you know have this mm. uh, west indian feel in his music but you um you know you and the band they've got that real sort of driving feel which must be you know really... well to to be to be very honest although I, although being a being a jazz fan and a jazz player gave me a bit of a mm. bit of grief in the rock world funnily enough later on uh, but i firmly believe that those of us who came out, who'd been playing some jazz before, who, who, or who certainly liked it, yeah. and then were in rock groups, we did give the rhythm sections a bit of a, a different feeling, you know, than to the guys who had just come in by playing rock. So uh, I'm not saying we played jazzy when we played that music, but we, it's, we still kind of made it swing a bit, you know, and it certainly drove because, you know, my mm. jazz training was all about you know, making making the thing move, making it move along a bit and and sound as if it was almost pushed, you know. So uh, I, I think that's right. I think my friend Ian Pace from the Deep Purple was also a, a big jazz fan, knew all about it. And uh, I think he had that feel as well. There was several of us. Yeah. 
ban switch that, that formula away from Jackie Edwards, albeit still keeping that driving sound with uh, Gimme Some Loving. I've, I've read that that was more of a band effort, but your name isn't down on the uh, the, the credits? Well... <laughs> <laughs> is that a bit um, is that a yeah, controversial that's a, that's a very moot. that's a very moot point. Mm. Uh, when it first came out, I think, it was down as... Um, it was down to Steve alone, and maybe Jimmy, I don't know whether Jimmy Miller had a credit right at the beginning. He was the producer. Um, and then Muff and Steve managed to get themselves on it later and get a percentage, um, which probably annoyed Steve. Um, but I wasn't around at the time. You know, we'd all split up and gone our separate ways. And so I didn't, I wasn't conscious of them doing that. So I didn't make any effort to try to get involved. I thought they might have actually mm. cut me in for something, but they never did. And of course, that was the biggest earning thing we ever had. Was that a sort of a jam with the, that the band did that worked up? Well, it was made, it was made up of uh, you know bits that had been heard by various members of the band, mm. and then uh, the words were uh, were written for that song. You know, uh, that's all fairly simple. As I say, it, sh- it I, I I believe now uh, even that it should have been a a group effort. You know, I felt very miffed mm. about having left having been left off that. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a there's a track on the uh, Autumn '66 album uh, which the whole band were credited to High High Time Baby, which has has a sort of similar feel as G- Give Me Some Loving. It does, and that really was it. That really pretty much was a jam. Ah. You know, there was a lot of things we did. The B side of Give Me Some Loving, mm. uh, which I think I do have a credit on, is called Stevie's Blues. Mm. And uh, that was on the B side of the single, and that's really, really just a jam. That was a case of, uh, or was it, or was it blues in F? I think it was called blues in F, mm. and that's exactly what it was. It was just a straight twelve-bar blues in the key of F, mm. and uh, you know they, they'd set their machines rolling, and it was virtually just Steve and Muff and I playing on that. I don't think Spencer was even on it, mm. um, and that's that's how that went, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very easy, yeah, mm. yeah. So, uh, but I think we all we all got credited, but unfortunately, they tell you that the B sides make as much as the A sides, but they certainly don't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that from experience. <laughs>
talking of 1966, there's kind of um, a very brief window of time. I think it was only a few hours, but it's, it's forever immortalised. And that's the uh, the Eric Clapton and the Powerhouse tracks. And, and, and yeah. you know, there's a great version that you played on of Crossroads, which obviously links to the, the future Cream version that, that Eric would record. Yes, I like that. I like the way we played that. I was I wasn't given any instructions as to how to play it. Mm. I just played it that when they started, you know, say so it goes like this, you know. I just started to play it the way I felt was right for it. And um yeah, I'm very I'm I'm proud to have been on that session for one thing. I um, uh, met Eric a couple of times over the years later. I, I said to him obviously joking. I said how about reforming the powerhouse Eric, you know, and he just laughed, you know. But he he said he'd enjoyed that session a lot, so that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> and it was some some band, you know, as well as Stevie, I've heard that Paul Jones, Jack Bruce as well as yourself were, were playing. Yes, that's right. And there was a guy on it uh, whose name was Ben Palmer, I think. Ah. And I believe he was a friend of I think he was a friend of Jack's, uh, but uh, playing piano. Because wow. Stevie was, I think, I think Stevie was up on the guitar as well with Eric, yeah, yeah. as far as I can remember. Yeah. And as, as you say, Paul Jones was on it. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, we did about uh, three or five tracks, I think, yeah. perhaps five, and it was put out on a compilation album with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and various other people um, on the Electra label. It was nice, yeah. It's good. To, as I say, I'm glad to have been on that. I'm proud to have been on that. I've been on a lot of albums by different people over the years. I suppose more than 200 mm. productions I've been on in the in the 55 years I've been at it. You know, yeah, all, that was good fun. Yeah, and of course, it's very nice to be able to say <laughs> I played with Eric Clapton. People, you know, hang on to those things. I've played with a lot of good people, but unfortunately, uh, sadly, in the world as we are today, they're not that known. But they're tremendous players. You know what I mean? Because mm, yeah. that's often the case that uh, people are not not that well known, but they're also at the same time terrific players. <laughs>
I want to kind of mention, I think you'd be playing this uh, live at the Drum Legends show, and, and that's uh, I'm a Man, which is one of the sort of latest Spencer Davis that's right. hits, and, and also a, a big hit in the US as well. Yes, it was. Yes, it did very well. And of course, the cover version by Chicago, which were a bigger band than we were, and they made a very long version of it with lots of percussion and, and their brass section and everything. That was also very good. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a Man was a good number. I still... When I play on, uh, you know, in, in more sort of rocky settings, as it were, today, I had just been on the road with a very good R&B uh, thing that we've put together with all the old friends in it. I use I'm a Man as the drum number, you know. Well, stick the drum solo in because it just is the right sort of tempo and you can play all kinds of Latin-y things, you know. Uh, it's great, yeah. Because mm, the, the, the original version... When you listen to it carefully, it's got, you know, the percussion drums. Yeah. And I think, was it hand claps right. as well? Oh, yeah. It was a, it, it's a good one. No, that's a great one. I'm a man. That's got shades of... I mean, this happened a lot in, uh, you know, back in the day, and it probably still does, um, where people would hear something and then, let's say, borrow the chords or some little rhythmic idea or some little riff. You know, give me some loving has got a riff in it, which everybody knows. They, they boom, 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 that one, you know. And that we had heard, or those of us who purported to have written it, <laughs> we heard on a, a, an American single, you know, by by an obscure American R&B artist. Because what we thought that we were playing at the time was R&B, rhythm and blues. Now, what they call R&B today is is another matter. It's mm. all changed, you know. We, of course, from our generation, we think we knew what R&B was all about. It was actually the real roots of rock and roll. It was the black roots of rock and roll, you know. Um, but unfortunately, it's got pirated and is used to describe all sorts of things today, including this uh, this rapper, I think he is, who's got uh, just been arrested in Chicago. <laughs>
we'll be talking about the things changed and um, you know you had that that yeah, three years of, of the Spencer Davis group with uh, yes it wasn't long really but of course I stayed with him um, on many projects all through the years in fact up until quite recently ah uh, there's a few of these there's a, there's a few I want to ask you about if that's okay as well <laughs> yes please do yeah because obviously um Steve, Stevie left to, to form Traffic and Muff went into sort of the more A&R side. I mean, I, I guess it was a mixed blessing, but the big blessing, obviously, was Ed, Eddie Harding joining the band. Yes, it was. Uh, when Steve left and Muff left with him for the reasons that he didn't want to be in the band without his brother, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he had other ideas as well, what he wanted to do with his life. Um, it's a shame that he went because I, I, he was, a, he was a, a good bass player, a very good musician. Mm. Also, you know, a, a jazzer in the background. Anyway, so Muff had gone and Steve had gone and I was really shattered because uh, mm. I'm a man who had just been a hit, as you said, yeah. and suddenly these two are gone. And I wondered what on earth we were going to do, you know. I knew we could continue because the name was there. It was Spencer Davis Group was an established name. Yeah. But, you know, after what we'd done with Steve, it was going to have to be really good. Mm. And that was a that was a big question. We held auditions and um, a lot of people turned up. Some, some good people turned up, including, if you can believe this, Elton John. Oh, before he was Elton John. And he turned up with Bernie Taupin. They were writing songs together. And I think it was because they were actually trying to uh, push their songs more than anything else. Mm. Elton wasn't particularly suitable for, for a band like ours. We were we felt maybe um, a strange thing to... Uh, but we, we actually wanted to be... We wanted to play black R&B. That's what we wanted. We wanted to keep that you know, try to get as close to that black feel as we could. Yeah. That's what we loved, and that's where we wanted to go. Whereas, of course, as we know, Elton was perfectly capable of writing songs for himself in his own style, you know. So there was that. Uh, but then we found Eddie Hardin and uh, and a guy called Phil mm-hmm. Sawyer, who I still keep in touch with now. Eddie Hardin's unfortunately gone, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died just uh, three years or so ago. Uh, but I had some very creative times with Eddie yeah. as Harden and York because Harden and York, uh, a duo, there were not very few duos around, maybe only two other duos that I know of functioning in the world and doing well. And we did very well thanks to the German public. Mm. I mean, I'm speaking to you now from Munich in South Germany and the German public's been very faithful to us over the years. You know, if they like you, they stick yeah. with you and the fans are, are there. And uh, they've stick with, stuck with me for over 50 years, which is great. There's a couple of um, Harding and York tracks uh, that I want to kind of mention uh, shortly. Before we get there, yep. there's, there's, uh, there's yep. a final Spencer Davis Group single f- from that Eddie Harding period that I do like. Yeah. And I'd be interested to see if it's kind of... You, you mentioned that you were kind of at the time still looking at that R&B side, but there were some sort of tracks that that had the more sort of progressive psychedelic sound tracks like time seller they were exactly yeah psychedelia was Mm. um, really uh, getting through then i remember many playing many concerts where the kids were getting you know prior to that they'd been getting stoned on (laughs) on uh you know on uh joints and stuff and then came the point where acid hit the scene and then the kids were being brought back because they were having bad acid trips mm. and they were laying them out in the dressing rooms mm. at the back of the stage while they recovered. You know, that sort of thing was going on. 
<laughs> that was happening all around me. I I never was very interested in that. I've never been one for, uh, you know, really getting much out of control. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, it was an interesting time. But as you say, we did our kind of psychedelic uh, records, and I think they uh, I think they worked well. It was interesting. Yeah, which which is the track that you liked? Uh, time Stellar, because the percussion on that as well oh, is yeah. quite innovative. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That and the strings. Yeah. Bit of an ELO, pre-ELO feel on that one, actually. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good point. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, Time Seller. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Mm. I remember we did a promotional film for it, um, you know, to put out on TV, yeah. uh, where there were all these kind of melting clock faces, like kind of Salvador Dali, and uh, different things to do with time and mm. the uh, clock faces and you know TikTok and everything. <laughs> mentioned Hardin and York. Yeah. What I've been reading, and you'll be able to correct me if it, it isn't true, was that, that it was Eddie that left the Spencer Davis group first, and, and you followed a, a bit later? 
Well, if you want the absolute, the, the, the absolute verbatim truth yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that we, all four of us, uh, by then we had a guy called um, Ray Fennick was playing guitar. All right, yeah. And it was Eddie and Ray and me and Spencer. And we went into a meeting with the, we had got a new manager called Peter Walsh who was also managing the Tremolos, I think that's how that came about. Mm. And I was getting unhappy with the situation with Spencer. Uh, it was all getting, uh, you know, I, I didn't really know where it was going, but I knew that I really should be playing with people that played the kind of things I really wanted to be mm. playing, you know. And it wasn't going the way I particularly enjoyed it. Also, personally, inside the band, there was a lot of sort of infighting and back biting and all sorts going mm. so i wasn't very happy so we went up to this meeting now this is the truth mm. went up to this meeting and i said i'm sorry to say before we go into a meeting about the future of the band i'm going to have to tell you that i'm not very happy and i'm going to leave and everybody was a little bit shocked and so they said oh well all right we'll settle everything up with you and you know we'll do the final accounting and all the nonsense mm. and then i left the room and went out oh. and then what i didn't know after that was that in the minutes following that eddie <laughs> <laughs> said to them well i'm not really very happy so i think i'll go too <laughs> and he also <laughs> left the room <laughs> leaving them to figure out what they were going to do after that, which they did, mm. you know, fair enough. But I didn't really know that. And then Eddie and I didn't see each other for some weeks, really. You know, we both mm. went our separate ways. I went off doing jazz gigs and God knows what. And then we met in one of the clubs like the Cromwellian or Scottish St. James, something like that. And we were talking over a beer. And Eddie said, do you remember that? thing we used to do that arrangement lady madonna, madonna norwegian wood mm. we used to do that as a as a duo act in the middle of spencer davis's shows so we'd done it on the american tours for example and it went down an absolute storm just organ and drums drum solos god knows what so i yeah, so i remember that he said do you think maybe we have a go and do that ourselves just and that would be us just the band you know so, well, that's a thought. So I started then to go and rehearse with him. And I rehearsed with him for about three months, I think, just basically jamming and coming up with ideas. And when we stumbled across an idea that we liked, we, you know, put it in as part of whatever it was we were rehearsing. And we made the arrangements up like that. And that's how Harden and York began. But that's the truth of how that split up came. It all came on the same day. And after I'd gone, he decided he was going to go as well, which must have been a shock to them all. But then again, well, you get used to, you get used to these kind of shocks as, the, as time goes on, you know, suddenly there's really smack in the face and that happens quite a lot in our business. Mm. Yeah. But you mentioned around sort of jamming around Norwegian and Norwegian wooden lady Madonna. Yeah. Is that what became the Northern medley? Northern medley. medley. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll do that in Brighton. Brilliant. And, you know, un unlike some other yeah. tracks, that really does give you the opportunity to bring out the more jazz and improvisational elements. Yes, it does. And luckily, it, first of all, it's exciting. The rhythms are exciting, even though people probably listen to them and think, oh, that's a bit jazzy, you know. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't matter. They're exciting and there's nothing wrong with that. That's what people, uh, some people are interested in anyway. So it gives me a real workout. It gave me a workout back in those days when I was much, much younger. And if I do it again now, you know, I'll be happy to be able to show that it's, I can still do it, you know. Mm. Quite happy about that. I'll be able to get through it all right. It's a hell of a thing to play, mm. I have to tell you, but still. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's just one, one final Hiding in York song that I'm, I'm very fond of. I, I think it's from the, the debut. Actually, it is from the debut album because it's the title track and was a single uh, Tomorrow, Today. And again, yes. you mentioned about the success in Germany. You know, you became big stars over in Germany. Yes. Yes, we did. We were on all the TV shows. And in fact, we made three, Eddie and I made three albums together, three official albums. There was also a bootleg album of us, which did very well, uh, which we didn't really get any part of, but still, it doesn't matter. But the three official albums that we made um, all went gold, according to our producer, Mike Hurst. He t- we never knew uh, that they'd gone gold because we'd got stitched up with the record royalties. I mean, if you talk to any of us from the old days, you'll probably get this time and time again mm. that the bands will tell you, well, we, we, you know, we had a really big success. We never made any money. Mm. <laughs> it all went to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but that's the way that that was. And Hard in York was a very good thing. Yeah. Um, delighted uh, that I did it because, as I say, it turned me. It, it I had no fear after that mm. of going on stage with whatever I went on stage with. Because if you go on stage as a duo yeah. and play to thousands of people uh, for two hours and you can actually keep them interested and excited and with you, then you've done well when there's only two of you on stage. Mm. It gets easier as the band gets bigger because there's more little pieces of talent to call upon. But with that, it was just us. And I'm very happy that in Brighton, yeah. I think Eddie Hardin's wife is going to come along and see us. And uh, I'll be very nice to see her again. And, uh, you know, a little memory of Eddie anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Falling so far, how deep can you 
you mentioned um, about some of the collaborations is very difficult. I've, I've got a few, um, but, but there's a uh, difficult to choose from uh, so many. There's this um, one of them that, that you did when you uh, worked with Chris Farlow and Brian Auger. Yeah. And uh, that's a, a track from Olympic Rock and Blues Circus uh, New Orleans Street March. That's right. That's nice, isn't it? Mm. What about your recollections of working with Chris and Brian for that? And that was about 1980, 81? It was in the 80s, wasn't it? Mm. Beginning of the 80s, yeah. I suppose, yeah. Uh, that was made, actually, that recording was made as a, a direct cut disc. Oh. Do you remember those? Oh, right. Uh, where you actually had to... You, yeah. You, it was very high fidelity at the time. We cut the discs. It was before digital. No, it was digital. I beg your pardon. It was digital. Mm. Um, and what happened was that they cut the record... Uh, you know, the master was cut at the time you recorded. Oh. So if you were making a direct, what they were called direct cut. If you made a direct cut album, you had to play the whole side of the album um, and leaving a small space in between of silence mm. uh, for the, you know, for the little track to go off on an LP record, you know, as they were then. So you had to get the whole album right. You had to get wow. five. So you had five tracks on one side. Mm. You had to get the five tracks right with no mistakes. Wow. And uh, that could be difficult. That's a challenge. On that Olympic rock and blues, we had a brass section. And uh, I remember that by the time we came to the end of recording one of the sides, bearing in mind that the side would last, you know, maybe 20, 25 minutes. So you're playing for mm. 20, 25 minutes, which, of course, you would do live, no problem at all. But this time, I remember we had many, many takes on one of these sides. <laughs> and by the end of it, the trumpet player's lips were practically bleeding. Yes. And we realized that we were going to have one last shot at it. And if we didn't get it, we were going to have to stop because this guy was in, in agony, you know. Mm. So <laughs> we made one last go through on it. We, all, we fortified ourselves with a few <laughs> drinks before, a few scotches went round, you know. And uh, then we played it all. And luckily, the trumpet player didn't make any goofs. We got it all right, and that's the one that you hear. Wow. What a brilliant story. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, of course, nowadays, you can repair pretty well everything. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, they could do all kinds of things to recordings afterwards. Digital has made uh, a lot of things possible, wow. which weren't possible before. But that direct cut thing was quite an adventure. That was at the beginning of the 80s. By the middle of the 80s, it had yeah. practically disappeared, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I still keep on learning something. That that's I haven't heard of that, so that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah, direct cut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was not, not many people recorded like that because it was actually quite a difficult task. Yeah, you know, there was a few jazz musicians who enjoyed doing that. So the label that we worked for at the time, you were asking about. Um, I should have sorry to digress, but no. you were asking about Chris and Brian. Yes, and the fact with being with Chris and Brian and the rest of them in that band was it was a, a huge amount of fun because yeah. Brian is very funny. So's Chris. Mm. Both got great senses of humor. And it's all quite mad, you know, with all the mm. banter that goes on. It's lovely. Mm. And so, you know, we had a lot of laughs together. Great time on the stage. And in fact, the band that I just put out before um, Christmas, mm. I called it again. I used the name again, the Olympic Rock and Blues Circus. And I had Zoot Money was in it, Miller wow. Anderson, Harvey Donnelly. Wow. And I had Roger Glover from Deep Purple on the bass, which wow. was wonderful. Wow. <laughs> so uh, that was, and we did, as I say, German gigs, you know, yeah.
up the road. Now, you mentioned um, about the, that you sporadically did link up with uh, Spencer Davis again, the Spencer Davis group. Yes. But there's, yes. A, there's a track that is very, very, there's a massive favourite for children of the 1970s. It was released uh, as uh, under the pseudonym The, the Murgatroyd Band. Yeah. And that's the theme from Magpie. That's right. Uh, do, do you know how you and the band got involved with that in, after the sort of the original split of, of the band? Yes. You know, I'm not sure who approached us to do that. Mm. There must have been some contact, maybe through a music publisher, for us to do that. And so we went along and we you know, went into the recording studio to record it. And I think we appeared on Magpie on one episode playing it live. Because oh. I remember meeting um, Susan Stranks and uh, who was the guy who was on it? I can't remember the presenter. Magpie. Anyway, uh, you know, they were all very nice people. It was lovely. And actually, out of that, because I've always been a frustrated sort of, uh, always tried to be a, a performer and entertainer, if mm. you like, in whatever I've done, I'd mentioned this to somebody while we were at Magpie, and they were auditioning. One of the blokes was leaving. One of the male presenters was leaving, mm. and they were looking for a new presenter for it. So I went along to audition. I had a, I had a great time auditioning, but... Uh, I don't know. I'm sure I wasn't good enough because I didn't get it. <laughs> and just as just as well, because otherwise I might have given up playing the drums and gone into TV and that would have been the end of that, you know. But you became quite a bit of a, a TV star over in uh, Germany in the 80s, I understand. That's right. I did very well, uh, really. For uh, I did, oh, I think 100, 100 big TV shows uh, while I was in that fairly short period of time because I met a, di a director, a TV director in Germany and I talked about my aspirations and the things I liked, but including comedy, you see. I've always, I've always loved comedy and I thought at one point when I was when I left Spencer Davis, before we started the Harder Than York thing, I had a friend who worked at ITV, and he said, oh, they're looking for comedy writers. Do you want to come and um, come along with me and submit some ideas? So we did, and they invited us along to a script conference. And we went into this conference, and Frank Muir was the head of TV comedy there, Light Entertainment, and he was the head of the table. But round the table, there were sitting people like John Cleese, yeah. Michael Palin, Terry Jones, all these guys. Before they were, just before they were Monty Python. Yeah. Before that Python stuff really took off, you know. They were writing for TV uh, comedy shows up there, like yeah. Do Not Adjust Your Sets and uh, some shows like that. And me and my friend put a few ideas in. We sold a couple yeah. of ideas, you know. But uh, we, we never took it that far. But uh, it was something I'd always loved, and uh, I thought I'd give it a try. So, uh, and then when I got to Germany, of course, I told my friend this, and he said, oh, we're looking for ideas, we're looking for people who can write. And uh, so off we went, and I did quite a lot of stuff. And, the, of course, the one thing which I'm very proud of is we did this show called Super Drumming, which ran for three years. Uh, I mean, I won't say it ran every week. It was six pro. We only did six programs a year, mm. so there's 18 shows. But we had some of the best drummers in the world came over and played on it with us. We had a super band with really high quality players, and I tried to sort of show the public 
what drumming is all about, drumming and percussion, so, so to speak. So we went into all kinds of areas. Mm. Of course, we put a lot of rock in there, and we had a lot of great rock drummers. But I tried to also show the other sides of it, you know, because I think that's important. I've never wanted to be restricted to just say, oh, I just I just do that. I'm a rock drummer or I'm a jazz drummer or whatever. I think that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's not the right way to look at it. The thing is, the drums are your instrument. Mm. And, you you know, I, I would like to be able to take my drums into uh, many musical situations and do what's necessary to help that musical situation, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's what I've tried to do. I've, I've played lots of jazz with some absolutely world-class people in the same thing with the rock you know mm. and it's been very satisfying we didn't make a huge amount of money with spencer davis at all actually but the satisfaction for me has come all through the years in that i've kept working with a lot of different people and met a lot of different people made some yeah. really good friends uh over the years and played lots of music uh different kinds of music as well so i I'm, i think i'm pretty versatile in what i do you know i can uh make the right noises so to speak in in many many situations because a famous musician from way back in the past called actually his name is Artie Shaw and many oh, yeah. many people oh you you probably know him band mm. a big band leader great big band yeah. leader a very very fine musician himself as well uh, mm. technically one of the best clarinetists there's ever been and somebody asked him, because he'd had a lot of the great drummers in his band over the years. He'd had Buddy in his band and uh, Louis Belson, all kinds of great people. And he, somebody asked him, he said, what is the job of a drummer in the band? What do you look for? And he said, well, a dr two things. I thought, only two things? That's interesting. I wonder what they're <laughs> going to be. And he said, well, two things. He's got to keep good time and help. You know, and in that yeah. one, in that one word, <laughs> he's actually saying it all, because the, the drummer mustn't get in the way for one thing. You know, he mustn't disturb everybody else. He's got to help. You know, he's got to move things along. He's got to give cues and signals, and uh, above all, help mm. the band and help the instrumentalists to to do a better job. In fact, and that's it. Mm. That's the end of the story. You know, which is wonderful. Says <laughs> so it all.
just to close it and finally mention the, uh, the the superb forthcoming drum legend show 12th of april brighton dome with ginger baker herman rarebell as well as yourself but i wanted to uh, cover a more recent track of yours which i think is uh, with helga snyder and that's heart attack number one to close <laughs> I, I thought that was quite fitting okay that's lovely yeah why not well this guy actually we got to know each other around about the year 2000 and he was already uh, he'd already had a, a really big hit record over here um which uh, was kind of a no- almost a nonsense thing uh, but because he likes jazz he likes to play kind of swinging music and it was a simple little melody but it caught on and it became a hit and what we did in the rhythm section just me and the bass player uh, was really just playing straight 4/4 four, four swing you know mm. Um, so <laughs> it was a wonderful uh, joy to do. But this guy is actually a comedian, Helga Schneider. Mm. And if you've seen him on YouTube, you might get an idea of, of what he does, yeah. even without understanding the language. He's also a multi-instrumentalist and uh, plays lots of instruments and plays them well, I have to say. It was a pleasure to play these shows with him. And he was doing a lot of shows. You know, I was doing well over 100 shows a year with him. And uh, it kept me busy, which was very nice for several years. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we can uh, we can close on uh, you know a relatively uh, recent track, which uh, shows that you know a wider range of your material. But um, obviously, uh, I think we're, we're we're covering on on this. We've covered on this show, I think all or certainly most of the tracks that you be playing at Drum Legends. Yeah. And uh, all I can say is, uh, I wish you all the best on what what looks like a quite an incredible show, and hopefully, this will be a, a concept that continues to to blossom. Well, that's what we hope. Yeah, we hope if the people come out and see us, I hope they will. And I'm very grateful to you, Jason, for listening to me rambling on. And (laughs) (laughs) and I'm looking forward to seeing anybody who comes down in Brighton. I'm looking forward to that myself. Mm. I don't know whether I've ever played the Brighton Dome, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Jason. Take care, Peter. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.